And who is it that gives us permission to call the God of the universe Father? Well, that was pretty poor. Thanks, Jakey. Dixie, I appreciate that. <laughs> Jesus does. And his disciples, when they heard that, their response was something like, what did he say? That's okay to do that? Yeah. So, take advantage, children of God, and spend time with the one who calls us into relationship as Father. Well, good morning, Applewood family. And those of you who are guests this morning, glad that you're with us. It, uh, it is our prayer, always in this place, that, that God be glorified, that we give careful attention to his word, and that, that we leave this place with just a sense of the privilege that we, we carry as his people in this world for the sake of his glory and those who have yet to know our God. So last Sunday I suggested to you that the Psalms, which is where we are for a few Sundays together, the worship book of Israel for centuries, those Psalms are invaluable to us as the people of God, both in our individual worship as well as in our collective worship, because they remind us again and again, that God should be at the center of our lives. The God who created us for himself should be the lens. His presence, his being should be the lens through which we are viewing everything in life, circumstances and, and, and events and relationships the filter, if you will, through which we, we run every experience. We are human, and we are made for him. And, and no surprise, as a huge part of what makes us human is our innate ability to feel and to express what we feel. I read this week that research has identified over 400 emotions there are primary and secondary and tertiary categories of emotions that, that we as humans are capable of expressing. And I'm pretty confident that my oldest granddaughter at three and a half can express most of those within an hour's time. <laughs> One evening, dear little Nora was having a, an emotional meltdown. Yeah, safe to say an emotional meltdown. And there she sat. She is wiping her eyes and puppy dog tears are running down her face and she's got snot all over her hands. And she's a wreck. And in the midst of that, she kind of grabs hold of herself for a second and says, oh, Pop-Pop, I'm just having a really hard night. <laughs> At three years old, I... You'll be proud of me. My response was, oh, sweetheart, I know. <laughs> and it took everything in me not to just bust out laughing right in front of her. At three years old, really? Oh, my goodness. The Psalms are a great gift. 
to us as we navigate daily life and all the emotions that we experience that remind us that God, God is indeed in every circumstance of our lives and, and, and we're not the first ones to experience the feelings that we have and, and the emotions that we struggle with and, and the conflicts, quite frankly, the conflicts that, that emotions can create in us. And I think we're going to experience a little bit of that this morning. I think the Psalms give us permission, if I can say it that way, to be, to be honest with God about how we feel. To be honest about the things that are going on and, and, and the wrestling that we're doing with events and circumstances and relationships and those other things that just, that just muster up a, a ton of emotions in us. And by being honest with him and taking them to him, allowing him, as my British son would say, let him sort it out for you and, and in you. I remember a conversation with a friend one time who was, who was struggling with some really tough stuff and, and, and feeling some disappointment and, and some anger, really, with, with God. <laughs> and I asked this friend, I said, well, have, have, you, have you talked with God about that? And, and the friend's response was, oh no. Oh no, a good Christian doesn't feel that way. <laughs> and I suggested to this friend that, that perhaps the God who knows everything about us already knew that this person was feeling these things? And wasn't going to be surprised when they expressed them to God. <clears throat> and they gave me one of those looks. Like, huh, never thought about that before. So this morning we're going to read together Psalm 139. The neighbor to 138 where we were last week. It's a psalm that speaks to God knowing everything about us. As our creator, he's always present and active in our lives. And it is another psalm that is fueled by that primary emotion that we talked about last week of praise and thanks to God precisely because of who he is, faithfully present in our lives and, and with us in all of its circumstances. So that <clears throat> what I suggested to you last week is that, that praise and thanks really can be. We want to be pushing forward and striving for as God's people to have it be the, the emotional posture of our daily living. People who are, who are expressing thanks and gratitude often to God for who He is. But Psalm 139 is not exclusively a, a praise or thanks psalm. I've chosen it this morning for that very reason because if you're familiar with the psalm and, and we'll get there, Near the, the text near the end is, is an example of another category of psalm that, that we are told is titled imprecatory. Scholars talk about imprecatory psalms. To, to imprecate is to rain down, pray down, wish for curses and nasty things to happen to people whom we deem deserving of those things. So... We're going to take a look at an imprecatory psalm, at least a portion of one. They express intense feelings that, 
that I think for many of us, if we're honest, we experience at times. Maybe as recently as this week with the shootings in California and El Paso. And it seems appropriate that, that we would consider the powerful emotions of this kind of psalm because they, there, are, there are probably moments when, when we go there, I know I do, and I'm, I'm not quite sure what to do with, with those feelings. So stand with me and let's read together uh, a good portion of Psalm 139. Together, here we go. You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. You hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. This knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. Pause for just a moment. Think about what you've just read, and what you've just heard. David's praise of God. Make that your own for just a moment. Okay, let's continue. How precious to me are your thoughts, God. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I awake, I am still with you. If only you, God, would slay the wicked... Away from me, you who are bloodthirsty. They speak of you with evil intent. Your adversaries misuse your name. Do I not hate those who hate you, Lord, and abhor those who are in rebellion against you? I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them my enemies. My sisters and my brothers, this is the word of the Lord. Go ahead and be seated. Well, did you hear it? Man, Karen, let's put the next slide up, please. How precious to me are your thoughts, God. How vast is the sum of them. Where do I count them? They would outnumber the grains of sand. When I awake, I am still with you. Heart of praise and thanksgiving. And then, if only you, God, would slay the wicked. Make my day 
Away from me, you who are bloodthirsty. They speak of you with evil intent. Your adversaries misuse your name. Do I not hate those who hate you, Lord, and abhor those who are in rebellion against you? I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them my enemies. What is this? And what happened to David? Do you think he wrote this all at once? I wonder if maybe he'd gone away for a couple of days and, I don't know, had, had an argument with his wife or his sons. Came back and wrote this last portion. Isn't there medication for this kind of thing? Yeah, there is now. All right. So, here's your question. I want you to talk about this with the neighbor for just a couple of minutes. What is your response to David's imprecation? How do we make sense of it after reading the section of praises? See what your neighbor thinks. A couple minutes. All right, let's talk about it together. Man, there's some energy in here. Whoa. What do you think? What do we make of this? You can be honest, you're among friends, Susanna. Yeah. Are you sure? Really? We can't do that? Susanna. Okay. Okay, a venting. That's what I wish I could do. God, I know you can, so I hope you will, because I probably shouldn't. That's true. Yeah. Okay. He's, he's the king of Israel. He can do what he wants. Craig. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Indeed. Yeah. 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 God, I've got this. These are your enemies. I, I hate them because they hate you. Yeah. Other comments? Lee, what do you think? This is just like us. <laughs> Do we have permission? Oh, let's continue because you, that was just a segue. Thank you, brother. Man, the check's in the mail, by the way. <laughs> Last week I suggested to you that one of the enormous blessings that that we who live on this side of the cross have is to understand the life of Jesus in particular as a lens through which we seek to better understand all of Scripture. And because doing so can, can offer some, some insights, and, and quite frankly, I hope this doesn't hit you the wrong way, correctives into 
our response or behavior related to certain passages. Lee just mentioned Jesus' words in Matthew 5. You have heard it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you that that you may be children of your Father in heaven. The nuance there is that you may demonstrate yourselves, you may show yourselves to be uh, children of your Father in heaven. He causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. You love those who love you. What reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Jesus says, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. What are we to make of this collision between the petitions of the psalmist and the commands of Jesus? The word of the Lord is, is what we believe the Bible to be, and, and certainly the, the words of our Lord Jesus in the Gospels is, is one text more inspired? Is one text inspired and the other just isn't? Perhaps less inspired? No, I, I, don't, I don't think that's it. I, I think this is an example of what I, I like to call trump of grace. Both texts, we believe, are inspired by God. Both are part of, of the Scripture. But in the same way, that grace has trumped the law in our understanding of how to live as the people of God, so too the words of Jesus trump the words of the psalmist when we consider how to deal with imprecatory emotions that we experience as a result of living in a world that has much evil in it. And, and as I said to you many times, our best understanding of the Scriptures comes when we work as much as possible and, and, and appreciate the context and the time period in which it was written. Craig's comment was spot on. David, David was a warrior. What did it mean to those who, who originally wrote it and, and, and read it? And if we don't give attention to that, I think we can easily end up with some faulty interpretation of, of certain passages and, and maybe mishandle some of uh, the, the imprecatory psalms uh, leading to, to inappropriate responses on our part. Let me, let me explain a little bit more what I mean by that. For the Jew, the Old Testament, the law represented the holiness of God, the holiness of Yahweh. And, and keeping that law was the way to, to live and experience a life of blessing. The law was, was given as a guide to the people of God so that they would know how to live as the people of God in a way that God would be honored and they would be blessed. To live according to the law of God was to be a righteous person. Obedience to the law set the Israelites apart from those who did not. In their understanding, compared to those who were considered ungodly. 
And to live apart from the law was to be unrighteous. The ungodly were people that had often been purged from the land. According to God's command, the ungodly stood against God. And to oppose and oppress God's people was to, was to oppose righteousness because God's people had been given the law, which was a standard for righteousness in life. Does that make sense? The Old Testament Jew understood righteousness as coming through keeping the law. They did not have the benefit of the whole revelation of Scripture. They did not have the benefit of our understanding of righteousness that comes by grace through Jesus Christ that is, that is taught throughout the New Testament. It is God who makes people righteous. Paul is clear in Romans and in Galatians that the law doesn't make anyone righteous. This is what Paul teaches in, in Romans 4, for example. He uses the example of Abraham who who lived even before the law was given. Abraham believed. He trusted and he obeyed God. And it was created, credited to, to him as, as righteousness. We understand that righteousness that Paul is talking about is, is a result of the cross of, of Jesus. Even though, for Abraham, it was a couple of thousand years into the future and, and as best we can tell, Abraham knew nothing of Jesus. Simply put, living in the age of grace that we do, that is on this side of the cross, we understand clearly that salvation is not granted to us because of anything that we do or don't do. It's credited to us based upon what God does for us because of what His Son did on the cross. It's not about what we do, right? We, we know this. The only thing we do is believe. And we trust God that, that He makes us righteous enough to be His people because it's the only thing we can do. That is our only action. And so all that is to say this. David lived out of his understanding of righteousness. It was a sense of I keep the law, therefore I am righteous. How dare wicked people stand against my God? How dare they stand against me? Because I am righteous. We live out of our understanding of righteousness. Or at least that's the challenge for us. The scripture again being clear that, that we are not righteous in and of ourselves. Paul wrote to the Corinthians that God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. So, so what does this mean? How do, we, how do we embrace the imprecatory psalms and, and deal with our imprecatory feelings? I think, I think it means that we, we live with a sense of great humility. Great awe. Great wonder. Knowing that 
that apart from the grace of God, in our standing before Him, we are seen as righteous, but apart from that grace, there is no difference between them and us. Let me say it this way. We view those who do evil and we grieve because of what evil has done. And I think maybe for, certainly for me, in those imprecatory moments, and perhaps you too, this is where the challenge is. The words in the life of Jesus call us to, to separate the sin and the sinner because we, we believe that grace trumps law. However, I do think that it's important that we, that we hate sin. We need to hate what sin does in people and to people who are created in the image of God. To hate sin, but to love those who are broken by sin, by those who are broken enough to perpetrate horrible sin on others. I think we are called to love them too. Hate sin. I think we need to cultivate a hatred of sin that flows out of our lives because we recognize the cost and destruction of sin, both in our lives and in the lives of others. It seems to me that we can learn from the passion of the imprecatory Psalms that, that hatred of sin is the only appropriate response of God's people. Sin is destructive. Always. It's always destructive. Sin doesn't give life. Sin kills. Sin destroys. Sin does incredible damages. And it seems to me that, that our hatred of sin must be directed at the destruction that it brings and not at the people who bring it. So, in, in, a, in a spirit of humility, let me offer you just three or four suggestions. Because I don't have this down. But I, I think... I think it, it, these can move us toward properly responding to those imprecatory impulses that grab us from time to time. First suggestion. I think it's okay to recognize that hatred of what evil does in this world is a good thing. It's a good thing. To recognize it to be disgusted and angered by it, I think is to share, at least in part, the heart of God 
<clears throat> but we must also recognize that we can easily, and, and I, think, I think mistakenly, assign the names of people and maybe groups of people to evil. And it's there that we must be honest about our emotions and give those to God. That makes sense? To not hide those feelings from Him that He knows already. To not think to ourselves, oh my goodness, good Christians don't think this way. Yeah, they do. But they also long not to stay there because they understand that, that the law of grace calls us to something higher. Hugely sacrificial and much higher. We can also rejoice in the truth that ultimately, one day, our God will make things right. There's great hope in that. And He may not be doing it according to our plan, according to our timetable, not in the way that, that we like, as far as we can tell, but He will. He will make things right. He will set the record straight. There, there is a coming day of reckoning where the holiness of God will drive out and quench the power of evil forever. However, and this is a big however, my brothers and sisters, may my heart, may our hearts break when we see the names and faces of those who commit evil atrocities because, because in them, in them we see the enormous power of evil to make a thing of beauty into something hideous. That's what sin does. It makes ugly. that truth. A second suggestion is that we recognize that, that hatred of sin really has to start with the sin in our own lives. I'd rather start with the sin in yours. Because I see it so clearly. <laughs> Isn't that us? Isn't that us? Oh, I... I will not properly hate the sin, and I mean properly grieve the sin and be broken over the sin in your life until I am grieving and broken over the sin in my life. No matter how small, I must recognize that, that sin deprives me of the fullness of life that God intends because that's what sin does. And Jesus is talking about this in Matthew 7. When he speaks about judging others, we are quick to identify as a sin in someone else. And, and that's, you remember the story, that's, that's the, the log. 
or the speck in their eye. And when we do that, we're speaking as if there is this huge log coming out of our own eye. What an image that is. We, we must be open <coughs> to, to the searching light of the Holy Spirit upon even the smallest, seemingly harmless sin in our lives. We must not allow ourselves to go down that small sin path. It's easy for us, I think, as humans to, to, to make the comparisons. Little sins are like a little cancer. And trust me, none of us wants a little cancer. You'll never hear your doctor say, don't worry about it, it's just a little cancer. Because cancer grows and cancer kills. Sin grows and sin kills. Sin deprives, takes away, strips, destroys the life that Jesus came to give. Third observation, in, in cultivating a hatred of sin, we must remember any of us is capable of any sin. Heart check. What did you just feel when I said that? Because I really dislike this truth. Because we, we all have our categories of sin. You know, it's, it's kind of like those categories of emotion. There's the primary and the secondary and the tertiary. And I don't want to believe that I'm capable of doing any sin. There's something that, that, that makes me think, I would never do this or 21-year-old Patrick Crucius, the El Paso killer of 21 people this last week. You know what? He didn't start out his life as a murderer. He was a precious little baby. Like all babies are precious. He was someone's little boy. Chances are he was a whole lot like other people's little boys. But somewhere along the path of his life, things began to go awry. A poor decision that was made here or there. As he got older, perhaps some of them made by him, some made by others for him. And decision by decision by decision, a beautiful human being made in the image of God began to disappear. Slowly. Imperceptibly. Is he responsible for what he did in El Paso? Absolutely he is. Is he responsible for all of the decisions and the twists and turns in his life that may have somehow contributed to that heinous act? No, absolutely not. Absolutely not. That's what sin does. Sin destroys. Sin perverts. Sin breaks. 
sin corrupts. And I think as the people of God, we need to recognize that it does that in my life and it does that in someone else's life. And that needs to be the task of the Holy Spirit as we recognize that and surrender ourselves to His work in our lives to help us realize that but for the grace of God, I am capable of anything. My dad used to spank me with a belt. I spanked my son Jeremy one time with a belt. He was number two son. Number one son never got spanked with a belt because he was the classic number one child. Compliant, obedient, sure, mom, dad, whatever you want. Jeremy came into the world and wreaked havoc on our lives. <laughs> and I remember one day, in frustration, I spanked him with a belt because I thought that was going to help. I don't remember the details. I do remember the bruises on his little butt for the next few days when I helped him get dressed. I remember his cries only once. And I remember thinking to myself, this is what abusive parents do. I could be one. I remember those feelings like they were yesterday. It still just sickens me in my stomach. We are capable of any sin. And a last suggestion, and the obvious one, I've already referred to it, is ask the Spirit of God to, to give us eyes that we might see the damning destruction of sin in the lives of those around us and ask Him, if we are bold, we will ask Him, Oh God, Spirit of God, break my heart for those who are so broken. And I think this is the necessary piece that we add to the passion of the imprecatory psalms that results from our understanding that grace has trumped law. This is where it happens. We don't hate people who are held in bondage even when their sin impacts our lives and when it impacts, impacts the lives of others in, in, in clear and in terrible ways. We resist, through the power of the Spirit, the temptation to hate them, to assign them a category of unredeemable and unforgivable and hopeless. No, we hate the sin and we hate the brokenness. We grieve it. We grieve the brokenness of the one who, in our opinion, has perpetrated. And we don't have to judge them. We don't have to assign them to those categories. We, we leave judgment to the one who always judges correctly. And we allow the Spirit to remind us of the devastation of life apart from God and the destruction that sin causes and stirs us up in wanting others, no matter who they are, to begin to experience the amazing grace of the God that we have. Alexander Solzhenitsyn once said, you know, <clears throat> if only there were evil people 
somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and then destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being and who is willing to destroy a piece of his or her own heart. Karen, can we put that last slide up? <clears throat> David ends his imprecation with search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. We can get our heads around that. Praise team, come on up and I'm going to pray for us. God, our Father, Lord Jesus, our blessed and wonderful Savior, Holy Spirit, presence of God living in us, our counselor, our teacher, our reminder, our convictor, would you take the truths of what we have learned this morning and penetrate our lives with them. May we become more and more the fragrance of Christ in this world. And as Paul wrote to the Corinthians, boy, some are are living lives that lead to life, and some are living lives that lead to death. And so to some, Christ's fragrance will smell good, and to others, not so much. But that's okay. We long to be the fragrance of the Lord Jesus. We long to stand for Jesus, and we long to stand for all of who He was, and what He did, and what He promises to do. <clears throat> His redemptive work in the lives of broken people. Give us the ability to, to see ourselves for who we are. Search us. Test us. Let us know if there's any offensive thinking or activity in our lives because we want to stand for Jesus and we want nothing to get in the way of that. So we offer ourselves to you, thanking you for your great grace, wanting you to be people who live out that great grace in our world that just so, so desperately needs to experience more of it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.